Podcast 187, and it's entitled Norwegian Wood, and it tries to isolate a um, particular contribution that was made to the problem of understanding oneself, and especially understanding the overall development turns and sort of summary of a human being's life that was contributed fictionally by the now relatively neglected, but at one time very popular English novelist, Neville Shute. Neville Shute, whose real name was Neville Shute Norway, was born in 1899 and died in 1962 and wrote many very popular books, the most famous of which is called On the Beach from 1957, which described the nuclear holocaust from an Australian point of view and was uh, made into a successful movie with um, Ava Gardner and Gregory Peck. And um, in mid-career, Neville Shute, whose career I'll describe very briefly in a moment, began to move in a direction that I find extremely fructifying, I use the word uh, in its uh, true sense, and extremely um, fertile for the thinking that I'm doing about the overall course of events, both in my life and in others' lives, and trying to get sort of a big picture 
theory of why people do the way they do and how it affects the future, how it lives out in the present and why it happened in the first place. And I'm specifically talking about a kind of turn spiritually that Neville Shute Norway seemed to take in the... um, beginning in 1940, but culminating in some novels that he wrote in the late 40s and early 50s, and actually one in 1958, about the influence of sort of one's past existence or possibly a future existence on the present. Now, before you say, oh my gosh, Paul is uh, taking a 360 here or a 180, uh, don't mind me, wait, because um, Shute is very interesting. He was a practicing Anglican. He was a member of the Church of England and a member of the Church of England in Australia who... um, went to church absolutely um, by the clock once a month. Now, you may say to yourself, once a month? Um, But that's what he did. uh, Once a month to the local Anglican church, the new edifice of which he paid for half of, and his memory uh, was uh, perpetuated there by his wife in the gift of a very unusual baptismal font, which was given in his memory after he died in 1960. But um, Shute uh, came out of a strong Christian uh, environment and had great um, interest in Christianity that comes out again and again and again, including a kind of nativity Christmas novel, which he was writing when he died at the typewriter, you might say, um, in 1960. But his turn, his thought took a very interesting turn, and it's that I want to talk about. Shute himself um, grew up as a kind of upper middle-class English boy in a very nice family and was very well educated at the Dragon School in Oxford and then at um, Shrewsbury and then at uh, Balliol Balliol College in Oxford. Uh, But he developed a very strong interest in early life in aviation and he sort of accompanied English aviation from its earliest days in World War I in particular and then through the sort of fun days of the 20s to the war. And he had a very uh, significant role in uh, aircraft and naval intelligence uh, during the Second World War and also founded and operated and owned a company called Airspeed with like a thousand employees. But he moved uh, in the 50s to Australia because he came to believe that the socialist labor government of England was quashing uh, merit, um, new ideas, innovation and creativity and that socialism was simply um, destroying any kind of real innovation possibilities and thinking. He was very serious about it, and he moved to Australia, which he saw as sort of the land of great opportunity if you were an Englishman at the time. And uh, his books began uh, sort of as spy novels, kind of John Buchan type of novels in the 30s and 40s, a couple of brilliant war novels, uh, particularly pastoral. But he then uh, moved um, uh, to uh, novels which related to a kind of... um, important theme that accompanies him right through 1958, his uh, second-to-last completed novel, The Rainbow and the Rose, in which he, faced with characters who find themselves in enormous cleft sticks or impasses of their own making, he has lovely people, but who circumstantially run into great problems, especially in relationship to love. Either they can't love, they're too cautious in love, they're too hurt to love, and they have kind of a wall around them, or they're simply uh, unlucky and in terms of a suicide of a spouse or something like that, uh, and, and clueless is what happens to them. And against the background of aviation and human tragedy, he created some amazing novels in which he tried to understand what goes on with us today in light of the possibility that there's some kind of inherited problem that we get at birth that we need to work out, like that line in A Summer Place by Sloan Wilson, you know, when the parents who have been so active in adultery save their children who are now sexually 
involved from these in these second marriages uh, as they say to themselves you know we gave our children a problem now they've got to solve it it's a little of a greek tragic question you know or an old testament question the sins of the fathers being visited upon the children to the fourth and the fifth generation and in a novelistic and fictional format um shoot thought a great deal about this and what it might actually involve for real people and he wrote a series of novels one called an old captivity in 1940 in which a rather neurotic troubled and emotionally really um overly cautious young aviator uh, is sort of down on his luck at age 35, and he takes a very odd job taking a Oxford uh, Don and his um, daughter around Greenland in his plane doing some archaeological work. And uh, in a series of dreams that are brought on by an overdose, um, you might say, or a dose of a very bad drug, he begins to believe that he uh, is kind of um, part of a dream of early um, Vikings from the Leif Erikson 500 years uh, prior to the date 1940 and it's confirmed when an archaeological discovery is made by him but more especially by the Don and his daughter in Osterville, Massachusetts, which always makes me laugh, but that's the community he selected for this discovery, the author did. And then he wrote um, a novel called The Checkerboard after World War II in which a very dying middle class, lower middle class Englishman is confronted with Burmese teachings about reincarnation that actually seem to explain a lot about his life and that of other people. And although the novel is not never didactic or pushy, you'd never call it a Buddhist novel because it's not, simply raises the question with tremendous sympathy and interest and open-mindedness. He wrote a novel called The Rainbow and the Rose in which a, an old man, an older man who is dying after an accident uh, seems to transfer his whole life story into the mind of a younger man who is sleeping and at the moment of the older man's death the memories of the older man are sort of explained so powerfully in the mind of the younger man and the older man you might say is saved. He's actually saved after a life of tremendous hurt and woundedness and suppression. And it's the most amazing picture of the importance of the minutes before you die. By the way, always ask not to be overly sedated when you get ready to die. Yes, palliative care for pain, of course, but you want to be alert as you can when you die, as alert as you can at or near the moment of death. And uh, um, this comes up in uh, The Rainbow and the Rose. But he also uh, wrote an amazing novel, and there are several others that deal with this theme, but the only one I'll mention now is called um, In the Wet, where a Anglican, an old burned-out Anglican clergyman, a very sincere and loving fellow, however, under the influence of malaria, is trying to minister to a dying drunk who is under the influence of pain medication, and um, the dying drunk's future bearer of his soul, 40 years in the future, comes into the picture and creates a dream in the Anglican clergyman by which of the future of England and Australia is presaged literally um, by the spirit of the man he's ministering to but 40 years in the future on Christmas. And um, the Anglican clergyman concludes the book by wondering whether he has pierced the veil. Well, um, I wanted just to present to you this because it's really important that we think about this. In other words, 
Why do we do the things we do? If you know about, if you go back into your family life and find out about your dad or your mom or your grandfathers and your grandmothers, you'll often find that things that you're wrestling with, they were wrestling with, sometimes, amazingly, in exactly the same dress and in the same form. Sometimes four generations back, you can almost find a recapitulation of the struggle that you have. And if you watch your adult children or your grandchildren, you sometimes see yourself in them. It's as if, it's as if the psychogenetic material has been passed down and you so want them not to have to deal with the terrible retardations and sublimations and failures that you yourself had. If you could just give them 10 years of peace or 20 years of peace or 30 years of peace as opposed to 40 years of the anxiety, when you see the roots of these things in your very children or in your grandchildren or your parents, you see it when you're reading old letters of your parents, old things that you find out about them, and it's almost as if they're you. So there's something here. Is it genetics? Yes. Is it um, karma? which is the word people today use, we would say providence. Is it a kind of passing down the sins of of the fathers upon the children to the fourth and fifth generations? Well, yes. Is it Greek tragedy, the power of fate? Well, yes. Uh, But there's something that predates us and uh, shoots fiction, uh, points us to the something, the possibility that something predates us and also something postdates us. And here there's tremendous hope in shoots novels and in life. You might be able to actually do something to change your um, child's future, your grandchild's future, your daughter's future. Someone said to me once, Paul, if you can, if you can alter this thing in yourself now, uh, one of your children, let's say, uh, will not have to deal with it later. You're doing this for them. And at the time I said, oh my gosh, you know, sometimes I ask myself, you know, is it, I've gotten out of the public eye and I'm delighted to have done it. And part of the reason I've done it, one of the blessings, I'm not sure I did it because of this, but it's a collateral positive, is that uh, my influence as a, quote, public person in one field or another uh, is now um, so much less than it was before. So they can live without that, you know, uh, he must decrease so that someone else might increase. It's a real good thing. Thing there and a lot of these overly active retired uh, men that I know ought to really think about that before they need to write another book published by Erdman's or or uh, Houghton Mifflin or whatever it is. Um, there's something here about the influence of the past in your genetic trail on you and your influence on your future, your psychogenetic trail. Bear that in mind, think about it, and you might find that um, these uh, stories, especially in The Wet, which I think was published in 51 or 52 or 50 by Shute, speaks very directly like a koan to your own sense of who you are, who you were, and who you will be. Now, we all know that there was an extraordinarily powerful and decisive impact created by one man's great sacrifice at a particular point, and we believe that is the hand of God. And yet at the same time, as we sanctify ourselves, to quote simple minds, sanctify yourself, we find that these patterns uh, of the ages are indelibly imprinted and indicted on us, and the same goes for the future, ours on them. So uh, I suggest that you work really hard while at the same time knowing that the, to, that the deal's gone down, to quote Bob Dylan. Thank you so very much, and read In the Wet. God bless. Oh, and here's just a little bit of this kind of thinking, albeit a little bit absurd, uh, yet it's got a great beat if you listen patiently, dear reader, to the first minute or so. Thanks so much. Bye. The content 
continent of Atlantis was an island which lay before the great flood in the area we now call the Atlantic Ocean. So great an area of land that from her western shores those beautiful sailors journeyed to the south and the North Americas with ease in their ships with painted sails. To the east, Africa was her neighbor across a short strait of sea miles. The great Egyptian age is but a remnant of the Atlantean culture. The antediluvian kings colonized the world. All the gods who play in the mythological dramas in all legends from all lands were from fair Atlantis. Knowing her fate, Atlantis sent out ships to all corners of the earth. On board were the twelve. The poet, the physician, the farmer, the scientist, the magician, and the other so-called gods of our legends. Though gods they were, and as the elders of our time choose to remain blind, let us rejoice and let us sing and dance and ring in the new. Hail Atlantis! Way 